Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? I hope you said good because I'm doing good. The only thing, um, our guest, I never got a, a, a second confirmation from him because I always send an email out in the afternoon to thank them for coming on and all that. And I, that might have been partially my fault because after I sent out the link to join the show, I think I received another email from him asking for a few more details about it. And it got lost in the fray, unfortunately. So let's give him a few minutes. And uh, if he doesn't email me back and doesn't um, acknowledge my existence <laughs> or come on or whatever. Uh, I'll go ahead and read from uh, Unholy Structure. But uh, this is totally my fault, I think, uh, you know, because I, I just, I get so many emails from people that sometimes it gets lost in the frame, and I think this one got buried. So, yeah, so I'll try to get him back on. I'll apologize all over myself, but uh, let's wait a few minutes, okay? Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you think you have a paranormal issue, we can get to you. I'm going to turn this up a little bit. If I read, I like to turn it up. Um, and if we can't get to you right away, it's a big state, right? If we can't get to you right away, we have mediums on staff who can call you and consult that way as well. Okay? All right. Welcome to the show. Um, again, my name is Charlotte. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. And I just want to warn everybody, big news today, big, you know, big news happening today. And I'm expecting internet issues. In fact, when I went to do the uh, intro to this, I had to do it four times because every time I did it, the internet would slow down on me. And <laughs> it looked like one of those movies where the lips quite aren't in, you know, are not in sync. So I had to do it like four or five times to get it to be, in, to get one that was enough to be in sync. So that's the kind of issues I've been having. In fact, I'm looking at my my top row where I see how many people are, are, are watching or listening, and I'm getting the little internet insignia. I do have an I do have an internet expander. I haven't hooked it up to this system yet because I, I ended up getting a new uh, I'm upgrading my internet, so I haven't upgraded upgraded, upgraded my expander up to my latest system. So I'm going to be doing that because this is this is driving me insane. Anyhow, um, we'll give him a few more minutes. Okay. I'd like to talk to, you know, I'll, I'll tell you guys about a few things that, that we're up to. Uh, California Haunts now has a Patreon site. And on this Patreon site, any pre-recorded video becomes a advanced video for you guys to see. For instance, we have a, a couple that was on a regular show a couple weeks ago, the Hamdens. And they uh, came back again for, the, for a part two. They're going to be doing a part three with me. And uh, what we've done is we've decided since I pre-recorded that, we put it over there. And you guys can see them a week to two weeks in advance of their actual airing over here, over on this system. So, um, yeah, so that's something that, that that's one of the pluses on the Patreon. Also, Nancy Matz and, and, uh, and other guests will be coming on to uh, have extra questions, you know, Q&As with you guys and things like that. Let me check my, my uh, email right now, see if he answers. So I don't know because he stopped answering me. So I'm just wondering if it's a bust. I'm going to try and get him back on again. I'll email him and, you know, apologize profusely and see what I can do here. 
Yeah, see, I'm not getting anything from him. He had confirmed. All right, well, we have a couple more minutes, and I'll have to set up for reading the book, which is fine. You know, I mean, that's what it's for. That's the backup is to read that book. But uh, if you're watching from Facebook, and no matter what happens, if he comes on or he doesn't come on, and you like what you hear tonight, uh, please be sure to follow me or if, yeah, follow me or follow uh, California Haunts Ghostly Events if you haven't done so already. Because we're doing these shows uh, Sunday through um, Friday. Different topics every night, including reading, including reading on Sundays. Okay? We read from a paranormal book every Sunday. Uh, YouTube, if you haven't subscribed over there, please do. We've got more than 541 videos over there. And uh, we're looking for subscribers because we want to get up to that 1,000 number. We're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing. So if you can find it in your heart to subscribe, that'd be great. If you're just visiting for the first time, check it out. Um, I don't just stay with paranormal topics. I do other topics as well. So, um, yeah, please, 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 please. Um, okay. That being said, a couple more minutes, a couple more minutes. I was just thinking about, um, some ghost stories and I was just thinking about some ghostly places because talking with Adam Maria Manolo last night, got me to thinking about, Hey, I could write my own book, right? I can write my own book. I kind of started my own book, but I never finished it because life got in the way, taking care of my, my, my elderly parents and stuff. So I think I want to start continuing with, with, with the, with the writing of that book because I have probably about 30% done, you know, and uh, it's all about like the ghost of gold country out here, you know, stuff that we've experienced in different places. So, in uh, evidence and things like that. So I think I'd like to write that because I, you know, even though I, I, I say I've, I, I had this psychic background as a kid, I like everybody else. I got to a certain age where I kind of put it in the back of my mind and then I forgot about it. And then, when I started getting like into my te in my late teens, early twenties, my ability started back up. Right, it was kind of scary for me. And then when I got involved with the paranormal group, but the first paranormal group that I got, the first and only one I got involved with, then it took off. I was starting to see see and hear stuff in my house all the time and and all that. And then I then I, I then I ended up self teaching myself how to handle it. And, you know, and, and how to control the, the good and bad coming through. So, I, you know, I have a story to tell because essentially I went from a believer to a skeptic to a believer. I was a journalist. I'm a journalist by trade, crime courts. Okay, so I'm very skeptical of things. So I went, like I said, I went from a believer to a skeptic to a believer. So that's what the book's about. That's what the main part of the first part of the book's about, you know, my transition through that. Okay, so I'd I like to get back into it. I think I'd like to get back into it. And I have a really good forward for it. Um, one of our psychics who's out, let me give you a little quickie here. One of our psychics who's on our team, who's uh, one of our remote psychics, she um, is a nurse by trade. And because, you know, our website and everywhere else, because she was also with that other team, her name was out there as a psych, you know, as a psychic cunning ghost. And she had gone to apply for a job in the nursing field and she got hired. And then she overheard some people talking and walked and asked them what they were saying because she knew they were talking about her. And one, one of the nurses, the, the head nurses or whatever they call them, looked at her and said, you know, we almost didn't hire you because of your background, because of what you do. And I think that's something that it's it's lightened up now over the years, ghost hunting. But back that back then, maybe 15, 20 years ago, 
when good when people were just starting to this fad to go out and ghost hunt because it became a fad ghost hunters came on tv we had our tv show about the same time it was like a fad back then then ghost adventures came out ghost hunters were low were not looked upon highly right especially psychics so i mean this, this has evolved over 20 25 years so I think that's a very poignant statement to make to open my book up with. And that, that I, that's what I opened it up with was that statement about you don't realize that we're just normal people too out doing this stuff. You know, we're normal people that have had experiences in our lives and we want to help others as much as we can. You know, and we're out doing this stuff. All right, let me check my email real quick. Real quick. So I'll email him. It's just strange I didn't get a response today. So maybe something came up with him. So I'll email him and uh, throw out some more dates and see if I can get him back. Because I was really, really into this thing with Eisenhower. Really. If, if you guys ever saw um, American Horror Story when they had the alien invasion on there, they talk about this. You know, what if Eisenhower had come to some kind of an agreement with the aliens? Right? So um, I was really looking forward to tonight. So I, not only are you disappointed, I'm disappointed as well. Okay. So let me call up my Kindle on here, and uh, we'll continue with this book. Um, it's already, it's already me being a ghost hunter for as long as I have, and reading this book, it's already rung alarm bells in my head with the stuff that's happening. They're, they're only over, they're there overnight, one night, and the alarm bells in my head are going off with some of the stuff that happened while they were there. And uh, if you'd like, maybe after I read this chat, you know, after I read the next few chapters. We could stop and you know before we before I sign off tonight, we can talk about that a little bit because my experience in doing this all these years, you know, just boom, boom, boom. You know, like for instance, you know, on the overnighter when he heard his wife's voice speaking to him or talking in the house in the mansion, that's when the alarms go off when when, when there's a ghost or or a, a dark presence that mimics somebody. That sets alarms off for me. That kind of thing. You know, people get scratched. That's definitely something that sets the alarms off. Things like that. Red eyes glaring at you through windows, right? Like Amityville. <laughs> but um, that sets alarms off in my head right away. So there's things that are going on already with this. With, and this is a true story, guys. This is based. This is based on a true story that Anna Maria got from this ghost hunting team. They're not allowed to use the name of the place or anything like that, but it's based on a true story. So. Yeah, I mean, I've, and I can say, you know, one time or another, my team or I have experienced things like they that like they're experiencing, but it never happens all in one place. That's the thing with ghost hunting. And if it does happen all in one place, then uh, then it's time to call out clergy. You know, when you get to that point, to you know, to clear it out. But um, yeah, so I'm 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 connecting with with this gentleman that's running this ghost team already. And his wife and what they're going through and seeing the apparition and, and seeing the apparition at the hospital, that's probably connected to this to this mansion that they're at. Because that happened to me when my when my psychic ability started to come back when I was with the with the other team, I was seeing the apparitions of the ghosts we were supposed to go look for that weekend. You know, I'd see him over my shoulder. I'd see him. They'd be in the bathroom with me. They'd, I'd, I'd go to dinner. I'd see him at the restaurant, you know, things like that. That was always right before the investigation. So a lot of this hit home. All right. Well, it looks like it's not going to happen tonight. I'm going to try and get a hold of him again. 
and tell them we got our wires crossed or something. But I, I think it was totally on me this time. So I feel real bad about that. Okay. And maybe he was gun shy. Maybe he wanted to do a phone in or something. You know, I just, I don't know. But uh, I'm going to blame myself on this one. So I'm going to try and get him back. I'll send him an email tonight. All right. In the meantime, let me uh, get my Kindle going here. So give me a minute. Yeah, if you guys really want to help me out, <laughs> I need more memory on my on my on my tablet or a new tablet because I cannot. Here we go. I cannot um, use my Kindle. So, yeah. Then until I get my contacts, I can't read the book yet. So once I get my contacts, I'll be able to read the book. Okay, let me get in here and I'm gonna go grab Kindle and see if I have it going in here. Hang on one second. Just give me a minute. There we go. And we are at chapter 17 or 18. Ah, 17. So we're at chapter 17 in the book. So sit back, enjoy. If you're having dinner or something, uh, you know, you might as well do that. You don't want to stare at me reading the book. Um, I, have, I have one listener that carries me around and does her laundry. I end up in her basement and all this stuff. And Yeah. So just kind of hang out or turn the lights down low. Put your feet up on the couch, lay back down, and let's tell some ghost stories. And bear in mind that these, you know, I'm going to say allegedly because I didn't, I wasn't on site, so I don't know. But uh, this, this supposedly actually happened to this paranormal group that investigated this location. All right, so here we go. All right, chapter 17, John. I knew the house was huge. What time is it? Okay, I got to speak another time. I knew the house was huge. I never dreamed it was this big. When I was still driving down the unpaved road weeks ago on my first visit with Jerry. The subsequent days of interviewing Jerry's crew gave me a sense the house was massive. The road, like the house, was worn from disuse until construction crews descended on the vicinity and the house itself. A huge house, full of strange vibes, stranded souls perhaps, and obviously a lot of tragic events in the centuries that it housed all kinds of people. The owners were waiting and hustling me and my and my team to resolve it but i was not going into to the i was not giving into the pressure the pressure <laughs> as these things take time there's a method and it's not like walking into mcdonald's and ordering a burger no sir it can't be hurried up all the attempts to fix the house had stirred up whatever was dormant for ages whatever whoever or it or they were were not happy about being disturbed so we saw a lot of things and felt a lot. And I just hope the equipment recorded it. As I sat next to Scott, it bothered me that Sally was silent in the van, which could only mean two things. One, she was a rookie and perhaps wasn't watching all the monitors. So she wasn't alarmed and didn't call. Or two, she saw it all and didn't realize what to make of the stuff. Disbelief. I'd have to check it with her personally when we finally got a moment together. Then I had to tell her something or Something or someone had been mimicking her voice, and a whistle only she and I knew. I myself needed a bathroom break after talking to Larry, who finally moved back to the attic where he was stationed. Larry was well-meaning and quick to learn, but something must have unhinged him up there. I didn't think he was following it. He was running from it. As I proceeded to the bathroom, I came out the first door on the right, and the shadow figure was looking in the window beside the door, on the far left. It was like 2 a.m. and my thermos of coffee had run through me. I'm, 
I made it creak on the boards, as the wood there was also pretty old. And the thing turned and looked in my direction. It had no facial features, just all black like smoke going into itself. It went through the, it went through the railing to the ground and disappeared. That truly scared me. After the woman who mimicked Sally's, vo Sally's voice, then the mist and the thing that Larry should, said he saw. I wrestled with the loose knob of the bathroom door, and finally it opened. It reeked something fierce, so I concluded one of the guys had used it recently, probably as scared as me. It was a beautiful bathroom, all, all tile all around and wallpapered like the olden days. But as I zipped up, the smell came back with a vengeance, and I knew it wasn't just regular toilet smells. I whistled a tune that I knew from childhood that only Sally knew I did. I think I was trying to comfort myself and feel more secure at that very moment. Excuse me one second. It didn't work. So I pulled a small Bible from my back pocket and off the cuff just started reading Psalm 144. Right there in the bathroom, facing the toilet. You know, the one that reads, Praise be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my stronghold. That one. Before I could even finish, the smell became so overpowering, I felt it was so strong that I was gagging. It was overwhelmingly powerful that it entered my throat. I walked out of the bathroom and into the, dark, the darkest hallway I'd ever seen. I didn't know. Then that was when things began to get even more terrifying. I felt like something was waiting right there for me, but I couldn't see it. And then... I dropped the Bible. When I leaned down to pick it up, it was as if someone knew, someone's knees were touching my forehead, looking down at me with, with hate. Truly, I bolted, narrowed my eyes towards the hall and into the stairs, running down two at a time. Then I heard it. The shadow was whistling back the tune I'd whistled minutes ago in the, in the loo. I sensed that whatever it was was mocking me. I wasn't about to look around me and behind me and just looked out there. Just looked, just booked out of there and back to the hall where the kitchen was. I sat drinking what remained of my coffee, trying to loosen my shirt and realized my heartbeat was thumping against my chest. I felt a cold chill arrive from somewhere ahead of, ahead of the table in front of me. It might have been a huge draft that came from the fireplace, but my mind knew better. Then I realized it, it was summertime but I reasoned that cold could come at night, even in the summer. But this was cold. Cold like a refrigerator being opened. As Scott drilled the van, I shifted my thoughts to getting home and calling Roxanne to see how her night was in advance. Then I realized it was only 5.50, barely 6. She'd still be sound asleep. So my sister and brother-in-law would be, as my sister and brother-in-law would be. I turned on the radio to hear something normal, like a drink of civilization as being in that mausoleum-like house made me feel like I was trapped in an earlier time, a bad time. Ah, okay, I got lost. <laughs> a truck drove past us. It was the electrician, Brent something. Then I saw the attic dude driving an old Ford pickup, the tail billowing smoke. He needed oil or something. Saturday's crew trying to make a day, work, a day of work before the sun went down and creepies took over. The small window behind me slid open. It was Ryan. 
when do you want to check out all the vids and EVPs? Same normal time, or do we same normal time, or do we want to wait till Monday after? Let's eat first this time and, and see what we caught before we head back tonight. Sounds good to me, guys. Yep, Larry said from the back. Okay, Scott said. I can make breakfast for the crew, Sally offered. I looked at the rear view and turned to look through the small window. Nah, you just did your first overnight. Rest and sleep. You'll need that tonight. Nothing happened, right? Sally grinned or queried. No one replied. John's brows frowned. Chapter 18 Saturday, 9.30 a.m. Brent watched the skinny but muscular guy dash out of his old Ford pickup like he forgot something. He reminded him of some washed-up actor still in his 30s, but somehow outdated. Or was it someone, a 50s icon, with clothes up, updated? The man looked and appeared rugged and suave when he'd exited, it, when he'd exited earlier that morning. A swaggered in that was definitely arrogant, swinging his keys like a weapon. Now, as he watched him, he seemed exhausted, even scared. In retrospect, when Brent had passed the investigator's van, the Harrisburg ghost hunting team led by John Curley, the driver had also appeared about as exhausted and scared as a cocky guy. And that was just from a distance at 30 miles an hour. Brent felt better. After his memorable encounter with the dog man or wolf man or whatever it was, he needed to know others were also wary and terrified. Earlier that day, Brent saw Trevor from the corner of his eye as he busied himself digging the trench that led to the dusty paved road in disrepair. After two hours, he finally found the connecting electric cable, which was way past the cemetery and in the cement, and in the cement tunnel of sorts he hadn't seen used in ages. Hang on a second. Only the newest homes in electricity, which was why the service ended three blocks down. Newer was a relative term. The homes had been built in the 70s, newer and simpler, not as grand as or austere, just humble and utilitarian. Around noon, Brent returned to his truck to get a cool, much-needed refreshment and spotted the muscular actor-like man dragging furniture and all kinds of lamps and bookcases to a waiting truck's container. The steel container had been dumped unceremoniously near the man's old Ford. The man appeared in a deadly hurry, almost frantic. Brent decided the man was way too busy for small talk and was under some deadline like, like he was. Brent sensed an unhealthy urgency and kept his distance. After all, he too had a schedule to keep, particularly to be well away from the place by evening. Brent munched on the large hoagie from, from Wawa, the convenience store. The sauce dripping and making tracks on the front of his sweaty t-shirt as he watched the frenetic pace of a muscular wannabe actor of swords. He looked up at the sky, crumpled the food, crumpled the food wrapper, and decided to return to his digging. As well-intentioned as Brent was to be, th to be thorough, he found himself hurrying as well, glancing at his watch on occasion. He dug and dug, eating pebbles, large rocks that caused more time dislodging and more dirt, packed into the soil more than he'd like. Then, as he dug, he hit something unexpected and wondered if he had hit a gas line in his need to get on before dark. He leaped away, 3.45 p.m. Brent gave the, the object a wide berth, examining it from a few feet away, knowing full well 
what would have happened to him if it had been a gas line. But the long object was brown like dirt. He wanted to have all his body parts intact and live to see his grandchildren, not to mention a configuration that might sneak into one of the homes nearby. Conflagration, I'm sorry. Not to mention the conflagration that might sneak into one of the homes nearby. It would be like a war zone, a small bomb. Kaput. Gone. All of him and whatever was at least several yards away. He suddenly thought about adding to his life insurance. Then he thought about his wife and kids. Then the prized dogs, the griffins. He caught himself daydreaming, watching the dogs in his mind's eye rush, rushing into the lake. Rushing into the lake water near his home on webbed feet, like ducks. Like his curious dogs, Brent approached the object still mostly buried in the ground, kneeling close to see if it bore a label that would explain what it was. What revealed itself from the ground had a yellowish-brown color, which was like a gas line, but the brown was different, and so was the shape. This one was very different, he decided. Not TV cable housing, not a gas line, and not electric. He touched it with the tip of the spade to nudge it with great gentleness. But it offered no clue. It sounded hollow. He surveyed the sky and figured with the sun way past the horizon and the heat of the day past its height, he had only a few hours before twilight. He looked down at his watch again in stunned silence as he realized it was almost five in the afternoon. He turned to his truck, deciding what to do next. The object, whatever it was, would demand that he snake his trench another foot or two, at least to avoid it. It appeared long. Brent decided if it wasn't too deep, he would remove it, and that would take him less time to dig the trench and make it as straight as possible. Brent straightened, dusted his pants, and dropped the shovel, determined to pull out the object. He strode to his truck as he saw the other man wave at him quickly and enter his truck. He appeared to be leaving for the day. He looked down at his watch again and was perplexed. It was 7.20 p.m. Great. He was about to be alone and on his own. Above him, the sky had taken on an ominous turn, as if he'd been asleep and just awakened. What happened to the time, he pondered. What happened to the time? He pondered whether he should wait until the next day, a Sunday, to continue. Then he realized that putting off wouldn't mean he might be alone all day, as hardly anyone works Sundays in construction. And for some reason, the road appeared uninhabited. Birds occasionally chirped from the trees, but Brent noticed for the first time that there were hardly any. He also noted that there were some real deep that there was some really deep vegetation and deep woods near the cemetery where he'd first seen the pair of eyes that might that night. Why wouldn't there be more birds there? Was it a natural habitat for birds to be in thick woods? Foxes, deer, the pesky squirrels? Where were they? Brent approached his truck and opened the back and proceeded to disengage another shovel and a pickaxe. This should do the trick, he thought. He'd just dislodge whatever it was and then dig just a bit farther towards the house. The farther he got from the cemetery, the closer he got to being done. Forget the orbs and whatever that light was from the house. It was just orbs, a trick of the light. Like the trick being played on this area. Like the trick being played on the sense of time. Chapter 19 
Saturday, 6 p.m. Sally watched as her husband and Ryan powered up the monitors and the EVP equipment. In three more hours, they would be returning to the mansion and repeating what they had done earlier that morning. This time, it would be a different set of rumors to collect evidence based on accounts from four other men on the construction crew. She felt herself wanting to join them more on these trips, but also hoped, for John's sake, that they captured convincing footage and sounds. An internal pressure crept on her husband's demeanor, which revealed itself in his eyes. Only Sally could see that. It lent an aura of, an aura of urgency to his movements as he feigned exuberance in an effort to, to cajole his crew to remain vigilant. She had not met any of the current owners on the mansion, but knew from conversations among the team members that they wanted resolution fast. Every day that the mansion sat empty was money out the window. For the owners, it was a sizable monetary investment, but for John and his team, it was a portal from which unquiet spirits remained earthbound, seeking justice. So far, that's what the team had experienced that first night. The team's experiences would have been enough for a family to understand and allow for resolution, which would take time and patience. But they were dealing with, with a corporation, a partnership. From what Sally could glean from conversations, Sally understood the pressure they were all under to refer the owners to the appropriate clergy or whoever would be the next step. But would the owners do that with mostly collaborative evidence? Without videos and EVPs clear as a bell, it would just be what they experienced with their eyes and ears, which the owners were too conservative to believe. Scott and Larry were drinking coffee from a generous pot she had made after they returned from early dinner. The two appeared fresh after crashing to catch some sleep in their own homes. Sally had a restless slumber, seeing in her mind's eye the reoccurring figure of the man whose face was obscured by the kitchen pots, an apparition minutes before they ended their vigil. Ryan and Larry obviously saw it too. She also wondered if perhaps it was the same specter she'd see standing over Mrs. Wells as she was being resuscitated. Perhaps the videos would reveal differently, as she didn't like the idea that they were being followed from one side to the next. She stiffened from her chair at the head of the table, expecting, expecting specter upon specter to appear in one of the monitors. The monitors came to life on the large dining table, Ryan and John adjusting knobs for all the view as the rest moved their chairs closer to the two men. Sally, oh, Sally, <laughs> sorry. Sally took her mug of coffee and pulled her chair by her husband's elbow. He turned to her warmly and smiled, a tinge of stress furrowing his brow. On each screen, the date and time of the recording was marked on the lower right-hand side. To expedite matters, without missing anything that might be crucial, they decided they would look at one screen at a time in pairs of two for collaboration. Ryan moved, okay, yeah, for collaboration. Ryan moved the monitor to allow Scott to sit with him at the edge of the table. John and Larry hunkered down together at the other end of the second monitor as Sally looked over the EVP recordings. The men would pause and mark the spots that had discernible images of entities or any kind of unusual activity, each pair taking turns to make sure that to make sure the last set of eyes didn't miss anything visual, etc., until they were done with all, all ten cameras. The EVP recorders were next. They would listen and match the time with the videos. Sally would mark it as Ryan had taught her. Then John would double-check her work 
and let Larry do some of it as he was a trainee. Then together, they would sit and review what the others had seen, replaying it with the EVP recording that was matched in time. The first phase done, they collectively gathered around all 10 screens and three monitors. Sally turned up the EVP volume. They moved on to the third screen and the fourth. And that was when the when they collectively heard something register on the EVP recording. Hear that? Larry asked. John and Ryan perused screen three, then four. The rest began looking back and forth between the two screens, then the first and the second. Finally, they went under the last screen, camera number 10, the attic. Scott reached to turn up the volume. Tick, 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 tick. All eyes, all eyes glued to screen 10. Sally held her breath. Oh, crap, Scott said. John placed a finger on his lips. On the screen, black smoke billowed from beneath the servant's back stairwell. It was that camera in the attic aimed at where Trevor had dashed, aimed at where Trevor had dashed down the third floor, down to the third floor after hearing a woman's voice. The same phenomenon that Larry had followed during his attic vigil, compelling him to leave his post. As the smoke ascended towards the attic, this time it took shape. As it did, the smoke billowed towards the attic ceiling and transformed, whirling. The shapeless smoke began to take shape, a human shape. Ryan turned up the EVP recording as everyone's eyes were riveted to the screen. Tick, 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 tick. A faceless man was facing the camera. He appeared misty. But the high neckline of an 18th century gentleman materialized. Like the specter at the hospital Sally had seen, this one, too, was faceless. A sense of menace and foreboding suddenly filled the room. Chapter 20 Trevor argued with the new man assigned to help him carry the furniture down the back stairs. Why did they assign him to work with the painter? Or was it wallpaper he did? The man appeared sinewy, but he could tell he was at least 70, maybe more. And those cheese curls. The old man ate like a child. They had sat down for a half hour to eat lunch, and the man had consumed M&M's and a huge bag of Cheetos and a 7-Eleven Slurpee with blue food coloring. What the heck? With a diet like that, I'd be dead by 60, Trevor thought. The man was taking his time. We gotta get a move on, Trevor prodded. Yeah, I know, Ed replied, still munching and looking around the attic as if he were on a picnic. Trevor hated that the man was following him closely and wouldn't pack anything unless Trevor helped or was right beside him. Trevor sensed amid the nonchalant attitude that the man must have also seen or heard something. He obviously didn't want to be alone tonight, neither did he. He was prepping the book. Regardless of how far they got, he turned into a pumpkin at sundown. I'm sorry, he was prepping two books. My bad. Regardless of how far they got. He turned into a pumpkin at sundown. Had earlier told Ed. He'd earlier told Ed. Leave him here. This pain in the butt. He watched the man eat, reluctant to pull at to pull at the furniture at the other end of the attic alone. Trevor stared at his watch at the time, and lo and behold, it was already close to five p.m. The lamps began flickering, the generator sputtering as the gas was low. 
Trevor remembered how he had been told by Jerry to check the gas and refill it, and he had handled and he had handed him a gas can. The can was sitting out, outside. The, the can was sitting outside the side of the house. Crap! Trevor said under his breath, "What now?" Ed, what now? Ed queried, still chewing. Cheeto stains all over his fingers. The lamps were flickering with the last gas. I uh, forgot about refilling the generator. Trevor volunteered, watching for a reaction from the old man. You crazy? Done. It stood from an old chair. It stood up from an old chair and drank down the last of his blue slushy. He burped loudly. Trevor stared back in Trevor stared back in disgust. Time ticked by. Trevor waited, staring idly at his cell phone. Towards twilight, the man began showing signs of fatigue, his age belying his sinewy look. It refused to move another piece of furniture down the steps and into the steel container awaiting them at the front. And they still had several, though the boxes of odds and ends were now loaded. The house statue he had craved to own was now hidden in the bed of his truck, covered with a tarp. I hate to break it to you, man, but we gotta get the crap out of out by Monday. Trevor prodded again. It's more overtime, you know. Ed winked. You can stay by yourself. I'm out of this. I'm out of this, Durango. Ed looked down at his paint-stained watch and remarked in shock, "It's eight. Then the laughs gave out. Chapter twenty-one. Brent pulled the object out of the ground, finally freeing it from the com compacted soil. Dust covered the object, and a stringy, sinewy substance clung to one end. It was a dog's femur. Brent relaxed his shoulders, exhaling and glancing at the nearby cemetery in the distance. Obscured by the four-foot wall, it looked less menacing despite his encounter a few nights ago. He sighed now that he realized it was a dog's ghost that he must have seen, as he as he just dug up part of the bones where the dog meant his or her end. He dusted off the debris clinging from it, and he studied the large dog bone end to end and pulled at it, the stringy mass on one end. You, my friend, have finally been found. He turned. I'm sorry. My eyes are dry. There we go. He turned the finger in his hands as he examined it, scratching his head. A mastiff from the size of it. It would look good hanging over the bar in the basement. He heard a door slam behind him. It was the muscular guy who looked like he was stranded in the fifties. He had not left, contrary to what Brent had surmised earlier. Good, Brent thought, surprised he didn't want to be alone. The man was carrying a sofa wrapped in plastic, trudging toward the container that was now filled like a mover's truck. The other end was carried by an older man, shorter but still sinewy. The older man was breathless, it appeared. Both appeared frantic, harried, and appeared annoyed with each other. They practically threw the sofa into the container, throwing the steel... Okay, okay. They practically threw the sofa in the container, throwing the steel as the piece of furniture landed roughly on the side. Be careful, Ed yelled. What do you care, guy? I ain't paying for broken antiques, you know. I don't care. I ain't staying one second more. Trevor entered the container and pulled at the sofa while Ed pushed on his end. 
Brent watched them. Brent, Brent watched, then looked at his watch. 9.15 p.m. Crap. Brent placed the animal's femur in his armpit, grabbed his tools, and made for the truck, opening it. Opening it, he threw the tools in, making a noise as they landed next to the other tools of his trade. Dang it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this mic yet, guys. He reached for a blanket and wrapped the femur like a baby, slipping it near the door. He watched the two men look on, and he waved, stomping on the gas, stomping on, stepping on the gas. Ahead, he looked at the narrow, unpaved road lined with cypresses. He glanced in the rearview mirror in time to see a pair of red orbs sailing around the two men, who appeared oblivious, caught in the midst of bickering. Both ran back inside the house, which was now pitch dark. The orb slipped alongside the men as they entered the front door. Spooky. Chapter 22. Ed trotted at a quick pace, almost slamming into Trevor's back as they ran for the front staircase in the dark. Trevor paused to turn on his flashlight as Ed slammed into him. They took two steps at a time and ran up the next set of stairs up to the third floor landing. Trevor paused, looked around, the beam of his flashlight showing the carpeted hall. He appeared lost. What the crap are you looking for? Trevor darted a look at Ed. We left the two chases here, remember? You mean the chairs that matched the sofa we just... Yeah, the striped red and... Where are they? You're on the wrong side of the house, bud. Lead the way. It's towards the back stairs. Ed grabbed the flashlight and strode quickly down the hall past bedrooms on either side. As he walked, he passed the bedroom that had the canopy bed and the sounds of scratching he had heard. He had earlier heard encountering on the weekend alone. He paused at the door, fighting something that wanted him for some reason to re-enter the room that had made him flee. An odd heaviness in his and his feet bore down on him. What's up? Ed touched his chest. He felt his heart flutter and his head swam. Nothing. He stepped forward, almost tripping on something that was pulling him in another direction, and reached for the stairs, leading back up to the attic. The, f- the feeling was worse there. He felt lightheaded. You go first, Trevor. You coming? I'm going to need your help at the stairs. Sulfur. A strong scent of sulfur assailed them as they reached the top, something heavy pressing on their chest. Trevor surveyed the area with his flashlight, moving in, moving it to and fro. No chase. Give me it. Ed, Ed grabbed the sole flashlight and began panning the room. It was almost empty, save for the stained tub that Trevor had been avoiding. Ed and Ed and Ed and focused on the on the tub which was gleaming white all the way to the bottom. Ed heard Trevor's intake of breath as he followed Ed's line of sight. Where'd they go? Ed asked. I'm pretty sure I put them by here. Trevor walked over to a couple of boxes. You smoking? I don't smoke. I smell matches being lit. Okay, I smell matches being lit. Let's go. Trevor grabbed the flashlight and panned the area again and saw the swing of of a lavender skirt. He moved the flashlight back to the spot. Did you see that? Trevor asked. 
The scent of sulfur was overpowering. The men looked at each other. It's not here. Let's, let's get the heck out of here. Let's get the heck down. Sorry, Trevor prompted. I'm with you. Give me the flashlight. Ed grabbed the flashlight and descended. They reached the bottom step, back on third. The lavender skirt swung, frilled, at the periphery of Ed's vision. He aimed the flashlight. Nothing. You saw it too, didn't you? Trevor confirmed. Yep, I'm done. Ed darted up the hall and paused at the front set of stairs. This part ain't as bad as the one in back there. Go, Trevor nudged. Ed stepped down and lost his balance. Trevor grabbed him. It's like, it's like, what? Trevor asked. I don't know. It's like the step disappeared. Let's go. We'll look for the chairs tomorrow. The men dashed, almost abreast of each other, vying to be, a be ahead down the three flights. They ran the breath. They ran the breath of the first floor hall and towards the front doors. Ahead of them, two chases stood side by side as if barricading the front door. Ed suddenly stopped, his arm holding on to Trevor, whose eyes were glued to the chases, which had magically reappeared. How the heck did those get down here? Trevor's eyes, like saucers, glanced back. Just grab one. Tick, 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 tick. What the hell is what the hell is that ticking? Trevor asked as he grabbed a chair. How the hell would I know? Just take the stuff to to the and looked behind Trevor as he lifted the second chair. Behind Trevor, at the other end of the hall, black smoke was billowing down from the top of the staircase. It looked strange, taking a shape as it billowed toward them. Fire, a woman's voice said. Trevor slowly turned and looked behind him. Fire. Darn, let's go, Ed yelled, hauling the, hauling the chase over his shoulders and dashing outside. Trevor followed with the other chase, tripping on the, do on the door's threshold. The chase flew towards the front step as he fell flat, flat on his face. The sound of a vehicle breaking to a halt. Outside, Ed, looked, Ed loaded the chase into the waiting co container, looking down at Trevor. You stupid. The investigator, investigator's van appeared, stopped, and John emerged from the passenger side. Need a hand here? John eyed Ed as he dashed to Trevor who appeared to have taken a tumble down the front steps. The nasty place is on fire, Trevor said, as he, as he pulled the chase with one hand towards the container. John looked up at the mansion. Chapter 23, Saturday night, seconds before. The electrician's truck barreled away like it was in pursuit, or being pursued. John watched Brent's van like it was on fire. Just ahead, John spotted the mansion and the two men dashing out, one carrying a striped chase. John, hang on a second. John first thought was that Ed was trying to get away with an antique chase. As the older man disappeared into the large container, another man fell outside the front door face down, the second chase rolling off the porch and onto the ground. They both appeared frantic to get out. Larry stepped up. Larry stepped on the brake as they watched, finally stopping the van right next to the container in time to see a, in time to see Ed. Seppa, I'm sorry, my eye got dry suddenly. Okay, okay. Larry stepped on the brake as they watched, finally stopping to see the van right next to the container. In time to see 
Ed, step out of the container. Headed to help Trevor. John, headed to help Trevor. John stepped out to confront the two men before their mad dash to leave, hoping to get some update. From behind the mansion, the last of the sun's rays were now gone. The approaching night had rolled and nulled the glorious summer sunset. John hoped that the mad dash that they were witnessing signaled an evening of activity that he hoped would give his team more concrete proof this time. The last three hours of reviewing the recordings had been a major disappointment. There was nothing taped besides the faceless man who starkly resembled a phantom at the hospital that Sally had seen. Sadly, Sally, needless to say, now felt she was being followed by a specter. By the specter. All the sounds they had heard, including the female voice that mimicked Sally, the smoke that materialized by the stairs, the feeling John got when he was in the bathroom, dash, no video or audio were recorded. Even the whistle that mimicked his own whistle and the floating butler on the screen that Sally, Ryan, and Larry saw in the last few minutes before he shut off the kitchen monitor were not recorded. Sally felt somehow responsible as she had been at the monitors to make sure her end was functioning in order. I'm sorry, her end was in functioning order. She felt somehow that she had missed something. She knew she had to be very thorough as she was as, as she was in her job as a nurse, which would have been someone's quality of care. The sole event that tra- that transfixed them terrified all of them. This adjusted. Terrified all of them to the core. Was the sole video of the smoke that materialized like a tornado to take the shape of you know, a faceless man. That image was indelibly etched in John's mind as they gave a collective sigh when they saw it was recorded. The attic camera would be their first evidence of a real apparition, and he hoped that was enough to convince the owners so they could move forward with an appropriate referral, in this case, the local archdiocese. John felt the house was toying with them, conspiring not to be recorded as much as it was conspiring not to be renovated. But the faceless man was willing to appear. The rest, all John had was collaborative witness testimonies of noises and terrifying feelings the crew got when they worked past daytime. As soon as the sun had set, what the renovations crew saw was enough for them to walk away from the job, even at time and a half pay. To the owners, it was obviously not enough. John was appalled when Jerry told him that the foreman from the previous crew had already collected and presented the former crew's experiences. The statements had been met with ridicule, tossed away as hallucinations, and even a passive-aggressive refusal to work under the conditions of a contract that could have had better pay. The contractor's foreman consulted the union, and the union before that supported the men, and the union before that supported the men, hazardous working conditions were their reasons. Jerry's crew was thinning since John had come on the scene as the paranormal team. The latest one quit right on shift when he saw a woman talking to someone in the scene. She, in period clothes, legless, and floating down the bedroom hall. She reportedly wore a flouncy purple dress with hair up high and a wig of sorts. What she said, John might never know. Both that and Trevor had apparently had some encounter again, judging by the looks on their faces and their rush to leave the building.
Tonight, John would keep Sally in the van once again, shifting everyone around so that they had a different vantage point. This time, the crew also brought their own cell phones as cameras. He hoped that by doubling up with stills, they could catch something worthwhile to show besides the faceless man, and finally refer the owners to the Catholic Diocese. Chapter 24 Spring, 1790. Back in time, here we go. Let me loosen this up a little bit. Okay. What's going on here? Okay. I knew she was more than pretty, more than delicious. That porcelain skin, that swim little figure, I could almost see through that flouncy gown and peering pantaloons, peering pantaloons, that's just given the marble floor. The lavender color so deep, so invigorating, in, innervating. Sorry about that. Suits her. I can feel and almost touch her in my mind through that long dress. Her waistline is so small that when I imagine my hands around her waist, I could scoop her up during a minuet. I forced myself to think that winning her was within my reach. After all, I am he, the man who leaped the highest and caught the trapeze, always with limber limbs, balance, and coordination. I never needed a net. The only artist without a net. I am not just athletic. I am created to be built for prowess. Stealth is my middle name. Charm is my last. I am all these things, and she will recognize me. My parents were the most sophisticated of New York's Upper East Side, but it's too bad you won't meet them. They got on my nerves, dear girl. She finally made it as one of the dancers at the ball and decided to take the train home to spend a few weeks with her parents and sister before the next series of parties that summer. She was excited about the prospect of taking a ship to France where she might meet that young man whom I must stop her from meeting. Match to me. Only. She will dance with me. Only. But she dreamed of a Spanish matador, she said to this elderly lady who doted on her like a hen to its chicks. A bullfighter. She's hopelessly enthralled with the idea of a Spanish man of means, with the blood of the bull for generations on his hands. This young lady in lavender, her suitcase in her tiny and delicate hands, and the stars in her eyes as she descended the train to rest. Excuse me. And the stars in her eyes, as she descended, the, as she descended the train to rest at an inn in the next town, the town I happened to follow her to, as I had a ticket myself. When the carnival left town, I stayed behind, so I could watch her instead of others watching me for a change. I decided to find out where she planned on staying. The inn, the ground, the grand house had been built when things calmed down after those t tumultuous wars with the South. Grander than the mansions of the South, like her. Dressed in the best of furniture, opulent and pristine. Like her. I'm talking about delicate things like porcelain. She is porcelain. I watched them. Hailing from a horse-drawn carriage, a man grabbed her suitcase and placed it securely above, above on the rack and turned to help Jeanine board the next carriage, surrounded by soft leather seats. She was called Janine. Janine. 
Janine sat facing the elderly woman, dressed in a handsome peach-colored dress. Her hair coiffed after her latest fashion. Her matching hat poised tastefully over her silver hair. Next to the woman was her husband, or what Janine had assumed. It was actually me. Later on during the ride, she would turn to the elderly lady. She would learn the elderly lady and I weren't a couple. I am younger, you fool. I am too athletic and much more vigorous than the older lady, whose neck I could snap in two if we had been along the alley. Janine, I bet you don't know that. Watch what you assume, dear girl. I am not elderly. It's the wig, you see. But I won't let that bother me. For now. It's just delicious watching you. Even the carriage felt right despite the rough stones. The constant rattle of the wheels and the clopping of hooves mulled you. I watched you sleep after you tired of that after you tired of that woman who went on and on. I wanted to clop her mouth with a large pin. Chapter twenty five. Brent sat at the edge of the bar, watching a game of pool in progress nearby. He had to stay frosty, as he was expecting the new owner to pick up Blitz, the wire-haired griffin who just turned six months old. Bred to hunt and run after grouse or whatever the hunter desired. He felt his rising excitement at the prospect of being able to sleep later after the pup was gone, and he only had to deal with the remaining two, who were both already two years old. Male dogs were low-maintenance. He decided a while back he was keeping them. Such strong runners with a high prey drive. They were winning medals. He wanted that cup. That would ensure a hefty retirement. He was going to reach out to every breeders in the next month to train another griffin. As the demand was high, he was riding on that. But for now, he needed to take it easy as his weekends were now for his wife and, and the job. I'm sorry, his weekends were now for the wife and the job that were now that had now left him on the edge. That drafted electrical cable, that dreaded electrical cable that he had to snake all the way to the side of the, the cursed mansion they were hoping to be a hotel. Heck, he thought. Not even for free would I stay. Not with that strange creature in the cemetery. That kept him up. He couldn't believe how much it bothered him after he tried to keep it out of his mind, which usually worked. Brent reached for... Okay, Brent reached for another cold one, the bartender waving at the clock on the wall behind him to remind Brent tactfully that he needed to spend more time with his wife. Brent took his cue, blew at the head, and drank down the ale in one long drink. He was looking forward to unwrapping the dog's femur he'd found to display on a case in his man cave. That, and some hot evening he'd been brewing in his head with his wife. The driver's side door was ajar, and that was unusual. Brent, had, Brent hadn't been feeling right since he hopped in the van on the way home. The dark road ahead flashed before him at the edges of his eyes which made for an interesting trip home. It was a one-lane road, for one, and only the, white van, only the white line on the right should be glowing in his headlights, but the left side of his vision was making some light flashes. 
When he looked to the left, the lights weren't there. He felt like something was right behind him, breathing in, in the passenger seat, then somewhere inside the back of the van. Now, on the way home from the bar, Brent surmised he did drink too much, in retrospect, and he shouldn't be driving. His head felt woozy, a feeling he'd had before when he'd stayed up too late with the kids on a Friday night, playing some video game that strained his older eyes. Things had begun flashing like sparkles at the corners of his eyes, even when he first arrived at the bar before drinking the first malt. Malt ale. When he stood up to leave the bar, he paused to assess his balance, but his balance was good, he thought. Something else made him feel like he was heading for disaster. Then the feeling of being watched. There was something amiss. Something he had to do, but couldn't, and couldn't quite put his mind to it. Right now, perhaps, he needed the, the centeredness that, that sleep brought. That and brushing his teeth would put his mind to whatever it was that was nagging at him. Brent slowed the truck, knowing his father would probably ream him a new one if he even just ended it. The truck was his pride and joy, his other son besides Brent. Then there was the expensive equipment. His mind drifted to his father recovering and sitting in his sister's house. Then it dawned on him that he was drinking as much as his father used to before his kidneys halted and needed assistance to process even the clearest water. That thought just simply rang into Brent's head like a clear morning after a heating winter squall. He turned the truck gracefully, slowly, this time into the, into, on, into the driveway, which had one sole lamp to identify his plain stucco house with a huge porch. As he slowed the truck and eased it in onto the driveway, he heard the dogs barking in their special room off the kitchen when they weren't in the kennel. The light in the family room and the family barking and the familiar barking washed over him like a safety blanket, and he sighed. Brent stepped out, grabbed his backpack, and slid open the back door of the van. He reached for the tools he kept safe within the house, and then the blanket that covered the animal femur. All right, guys, that's it. We left off Chapter 26 tonight. Pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Like I said, my eyes get dry, and then I have to, like, reassess what I'm reading. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you guys for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. Sorry about the guest. Uh, got our wires crossed. Man, I think it's mainly, like I said earlier, I think it's mainly my fault. Uh, what happened tonight? Tomorrow night, 6.30 p.m., be here. Nancy Matz is going to be here, and she's going to be doing some short readings. So have your question ready, right? Check it out tomorrow. So we're going to be doing short readings. So uh, that'll be fun. So 6.30 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, if um, you like what you saw, please be sure to hit the like button, hit the thumbs up button, hit the smiley button. Whatever you have to hit, show me some hearts, show me some love. Um, and uh, that, that goes for all you guys on Facebook and all you guys over on YouTube. So help me out a little bit. And again, if you like what you heard, please be sure to follow if you haven't done so already on, face, on Facebook. And please be sure to subscribe over YouTube. I'd really appreciate it. Really would appreciate it. And I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And I, I, I will definitely see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. All right? I'm going to cut it short. And I hope you have a great rest of the evening. And let me find my little buttons here. Okay. <laughs> Ain't easy being blind. All right, here we go. See you tomorrow, guys. Have a good one. <laughs>